Welcome back to New View EDU. Today, we are excited to share the first episode of a three-part mini-series on fostering innovation from our sister NAIS podcast, Member Voices. The series is hosted by the NAIS Director of Innovation Programs and my colleague on the Strategy Lab team, Jackie Walking. Episode two was released earlier this month, and the third and final episode drops on June 6th. Today, I'll be speaking with Greg Chalfin, head of the middle school at Stanley British Primary School in Denver, Colorado. Greg, welcome to Member Voices. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So we're talking about fostering innovation today, and I think it can be really helpful to hear specific examples about innovation in schools how you've implemented it, what went really well, maybe what were some of the stumbling blocks, just to help us get a better grasp of the concept and its applications in our communities. So I like to think of schools as having kind of multiple levers that they can pull on to innovate, right? These include curriculum and programming, maybe staffing structures, the use of time and space, and lots and lots of other levers, you know, that schools can pull. So I'm curious, what are some of the specific examples at Stanley British Primary School that you can speak to on how you've innovated at the school? Yeah, I, I really appreciate you having me, Jackie, and I'm excited to dive into it. You know, innovation, I think, has been something that has been a real emphasis for us at Stanley British Primary School and has been brought about certainly by the unique circumstances of the last couple of years. And we're a school, historically, Stanley British Primary School, we're a school that's foundationally grounded in elementary education and a belief in constructivist approach and kids uncovering their own learning and having a lot of choice and agency in what they do and who they are. We go by first name at our school, even through the middle school, we don't give formal cumulative grades, although we provide lots of different feedback. And so given all of that context, as we went into this beginning of the pandemic and almost exactly two years ago today, you know, when we all went online, For us, as we were online that first spring, we did the best we could like everybody else and we got some good things out of it. But as we came into that next school year, last school year, the 2020-2021 school year, we really felt, you know, we just had to be in person. And so when we thought about that and we thought about this kind of story of who we are and I started to collaborate with our team, you know, a few of the teachers on my team, their undergraduate experience had been at a local college called Colorado College Liberal Arts School, and another faculty member had gone to a school in Iowa called Cornell College, and both of those schools use a model called the block model, and, you know, you know many educators out there are probably familiar with it, but if you're not, you take uh, one course at a time intensively for three weeks at the collegiate level, and so we kind of thought about that concept, and we said, you know, well, what if we can't be mixing kids up or don't want to be mixing kids up for safety purposes through the through the pandemic, then how are we going to, you know, be able to bring students back to campus and do so in a safe manner? And one way we thought about given our primary roots, given some uh, faculty members on on staff who had this experience, given being creative and innovative and having an opportunity to try something different is what if we made the middle school look more like Colorado College. And so we didn't have one class at a time for students, um, but we had two and we really cohorted our kids and had, we have about 50, 55 students per grade in the middle school at Stanley. And so we had three cohorts, about 17 or 18 students. And for a month, we paired subjects. And for a month, you had 
those two subjects as your deep learning that you would do. So part of the day math, part of the day science, part of the day an interdisciplinary connection, co-taught between those two teachers to really bring both subjects uh, to life and bring them together. And then after a month, those 17, 18 students would move on to language arts and the arts. And so they're, you know, reading Shakespeare, they're performing Shakespeare, they're taking music class and writing poetry, they're doing lots of interdisciplinary connections. And then after a month, they'd move on to social studies in Spanish and do those two subjects for a month. And then uh, after those three months, you know, then it's Thanksgiving break and we were able to mix kids up into different cohorts over longer periods of time. You know, when I first introduced this idea to our, our faculty more broadly, they were trepidatious. It was the start of the pandemic and they were also really excited. And it, you know, begged the question of asking, we talk about essential questions a lot in education. It begged the question of if you had to reduce your class down to the month of what's most essential in the trimester, even though you're going to have a lot more time, what would you do? And now you're going to get to teach that same month course three consecutive months and you're going to get better at it. You're going to iterate on it. You're going to learn more and you're going to really get to meet kids and prioritize the relationships with them because you've got one group of 18 kids as your whole ki- as your whole class load. You mentioned the moment where teachers were maybe a bit trepidatious, but also excited. How do you roll out an initiative like this? And you know, what was that professional development like for your faculty? Did you try to pilot or test any of the ideas first, or was it maybe something that you kind of went all in with and kind of started within the whole middle school at once? I'm just curious kind of how you got teachers to buy into the idea and then actually train them and then implemented it. Yeah, it's a really good question. And as I reflect on it, you know, you can't see me right now, but I'm smiling because if I could do it again and do it more thoughtfully than we did, it it was so time pressured, right? You know, we got out of that first spring, it's the summer, we've got to remake the school, we have these priorities, we know we want to be in person, we want to do it safely. And, you know, it's the summer and teachers have their summer away or doing different things. And so it was like, you know, how are we going to do this and get folks as ready as we possibly can, knowing that it's really, really different. And so in that moment, for me, what it was is it wasn't one moment is it was about 20, 25 faculty on my staff. It was about 23, 30 minute conversations with each individual faculty member learning about where they are, hearing about what questions they have, what they felt like they needed, what their initial take was. And, you know, some faculty were all in and couldn't wait. The people who had gone to Colorado College for undergrad, they were like, oh, yeah, I know this. I don't know how it's going to work for middle schoolers, but I've lived that, and there's some things that I can bring. And I drew on them as experts to help teach us a little about their own experience. And for some people, that undergraduate experience was a few years ago. And for, you know, for one of my faculty members, it was about 30 years ago. You know, it was a, a different experience for everyone. What I was able to tell them is we are going to have a lot of conversation together in the weeks leading up to school, and we're also going to draw on experts. And so I reached out to folks at the teaching and learning office at Colorado College and Cornell College and got them to Zoom with our faculty a couple times during the year before the school year started. And then about, you know, two, three months into the school year in November after we'd lived it a little while. And they were able to provide some really great advice for our faculty you know, as far as I know, there's not a whole lot of research out there about, you know, what Colorado College's model looks like in a middle school. But what they were able to tell us is the learning outcomes that they've seen from research at the college level are equivalent or even slightly better for intensive time shortened courses than for traditional semester length courses. You know, they were able to tell us about some different strategies they utilize 
with their faculty around assigning fewer readings, but asking students to do more with them, asking students to describe their problem solving processes, really focusing on problem and project based learning, which was which were things that were already baked into what we do pedagogically at Stanley really thinking about assignments as formative instead of summative. So there was a lot of alignment already. And in fact, some faculty members, and I think it was really helpful, said, you know, I don't know how this is going to go, but it feels very Stanley. And and that, to me, I think got a lot of our folks on board. And really what, what the folks from Colorado College and Cornell College told us, um, a woman named Tracy Freeman and Jen Rouse, who are, or, who are fantastic, they said, you know, what really matters is the individual faculty member and the pedagogical choices they make. And that's a deep belief of our school is that we want to, and it's one of the beauties about being in an independent school is we want teachers to live who they are. We want them to bring their personal curriculum to the classroom. We want them to be invited to conversation with their students and invite their students to conversation as well. And so when I think, I think there was a collective ease for faculty when they were able to say, oh, I just need to be who I've been, even if it's in a different structure. Those conversations, I think, really helped. We also really prioritized having collaborative time for faculty to be able to meet together and spend time reflecting with one another. And I think that was really helpful. And so this like was our PD for last year, was living this model, you know, what it was like, what it wasn't. And, you know, there are faculty members to this day who, you know, as hard as last year was for everyone, will say to me, oh, I really wish I just had my 18 kids like I did last year and could really focus on them. And there are faculty who last year the model served its purpose and they were ready to get back to teaching multiple sections at once and having kids consistently. And so everyone had a different experience with it. But I think what they did were able to see is it served our kids really, really well in a really hard time for schools. You know, I love so much about your approach as far as the, you know, starting with those one-on-one conversations to really build that trust with each of your faculty member that we're going to take on this kind of huge change. But also the fact that you said it, it feels very Stanley, right? That there was probably a lot in it that just felt like it was part of who you are and part of your culture and that they could really rely on that sense of familiarity, right? As they jumped into something new. I'm curious too, like as you got into it, it sounded like there was a lot of collaboration, a lot of ongoing professional development for your staff. But from the student perspective, I'm also curious how much did they have a say in the learning experience and the design of it as you were implementing this new program and new new structure and, and schedule? Quite a bit. You know, I would say from a macro level, not a ton because we just needed to get into the school year and kids were so pumped to be back in school whatever it looked like, you know, and for middle school students, one of the things I most love about them is like, there is no filter, like they are going to tell you what is on their mind. And so as we got into it, and as teachers oriented themselves to the learning and said, you know, we're going to have a couple of math lessons a day, we're gonna have a couple of science lessons, and we're going to have this time that's interdisciplinary. Let's hear from you what would be exciting to pursue. And so, you know, like our seventh grade math and science team, I remember that, you know, they were doing a a big thing around time graphs and utilizing, you know, our campus to have kids like, you know, skateboarding down our carpool lane to figure out how fast kids were going, how quick they were going. And so even though we couldn't do field trips off campus, we were able to be on campus and use our space in some really creative and innovative ways that gave agency to student voice and gave agency to students being able to 
make school feel as normal or as pre-pandemic as possible. So I think that was really good. We also got feedback from students throughout the year. You know, the the initial feedback from students, for better or worse, was we love it. We have two two classes of homework instead of seven, which is a total oversimplification and like a very mythical answer. But at the same time, we also there's a kernel of truth in it that we needed to listen to, which was this is not overwhelming us at a time when everybody's cup was already overflowing. And that I think was really important to listen to as we continued to go into the, go with the model. So now I'm kind of curious, moving forward, as you know, we kind of round out this school year and think about the next, what does the model look like as you think about the future? And what have you learned, I guess, in this last year that will change it? Totally. As we came out of the last school year and went into this school year, we got feedback from a number of different constituents, from teachers, from students. You know, we got some feedback from parents as well, although they weren't, they're not living the schedule every day. I think it was important to hear about their experience of what they're seeing for their kids, particularly just in supporting their social emotional growth and, and partnering with them, you know, between home and school. And so the model we went with this year was kind of, we've called this model the bulldog block model. Our mascot is the, is the bulldogs. And so this year's bulldog block 2.0 was, you know, some of our courses, some of our, our subjects stayed in uh, a block model and some did not. So it's kind of a hybrid. It's a, a three plus one. And so the, the three courses that students are taking consistently four or five days a week are um, courses that we felt they needed to have that would, would benefit from having the consistency of taking it all year long. And so those classes were Spanish, as I alluded to earlier, math and, and language arts, um, English class. We wanted to have a consistent writing component as well. But then we have to continue with the, kind of the college terminology. We have students taking what we call their major in a four-week block in which they have more dedicated time to that course over the course of a week, about about double the amount of time as as they have for any other class over the course of of four weeks. And they're able to, you know, really dive deep. And those subjects are the arts, social studies, and science. And, you know, so kids move through those majors. And so now instead of having one musical production in, in the eighth grade in which only one kid gets to play the lead and one kid gets to you know be the star now we have three four-week intensive blocks of the musical and so there's three casts who and they're you know the students are getting to support one another and they're able to whether they went first or third in the rotation they're able to support each other science courses you know we've been able to do some creative scheduling to provide some longer periods for science um, folks to be able to go deeper with labs and so that major class has been a really nice model for us for this school year. What happens for next school year and what we've learned? I'm not 100% sure yet. You know, I think we're in the process of gathering feedback and being iterative. But I think what it has shown us is that, you know, we can challenge some big assumptions that we have in education and in schools, like that you have to have a course be a semester long or a year long. You know, we can challenge notions that you know, you can build time and space to have co-taught interdisciplinary classes within your schedule and make it work. So it's really, you know, a reflection of, you know, how you spend time is, is a reflection of your values and priorities. And I think that as we continue to iterate from this, we're able to, to come back to these two years of experience, which have been 
so difficult and so challenging in many ways and say, wow, we've really learned a lot. And what can we take from this that doesn't say, um, well, let's just go back to what we did before the pandemic. And I think that's been a really, a really nice lesson and professional development for our faculty. There's so many levers that you've pulled on, right? Like you just said, the time and space lever, the just iterating on your, your actual schedule and how you embed some of that consistency with the skills that you know are so important for your students, but also the, the depth that you can go into, right, with some of those blocks. And so it's just been fascinating. I'm, I'm wondering now about another lever, which is something you alluded to earlier in the fact that there are no grades. I think you said maybe that was just in the elementary. So I'm just curious how assessment, if that's a lever, and how you're providing feedback in this new model. What does that look like? You know, there's a, a movement, I think, in education to, to move to something like competency-based learning or even just more kind of mastery-based skills? How are we assessing students? How are we giving that feedback to them? And so I'm curious what it looks like in this model for your middle school students. If you could speak to that assessment lever, that would be wonderful. Yeah. So in the lower school and then also in the middle school, we do not give cumulative grades at the like end of a trimester or the end of a block. So, you know, even in the middle school pre-pandemic, you know, you get the to the end of a trimester, the end of the year, you know, you've gotten a lot of feedback. We grade individual assignments in a, in a variety of different ways, some of the ways that you described. Um, but we also rely pretty heavily on um, narrative feedback and narrative comments and self-reflection from students, um, doing some self-assessment as well. I think assessment is probably a place where we're still growing as a faculty and still growing also in this model. And one of the reasons that I say that is, while you only have 18 students, when you only have them for four weeks, there's a time pressure that comes with this model that is not as uh, apparent or not as urgent, I guess would be the word that I might use, as when you have kids consistently all year long. We know, and from research, right, that kids receiving feedback quickly is really important. And so in a four-week model, though, if you don't, you know, if you give a paper and then don't hand it back you know, for a week or two weeks, the course is almost done. And so there is a bit of urgency around that. And I think that was something that we didn't anticipate as much going in and has been an area of growth for us and something that we, you know, will still need to continue to work on supporting. I'd also say that like, from an assessment standpoint, what we've been able to see is that in being project-based and in having kids uncover their own learning, we've been able to lean on some more creative assessment strategies like providing opportunities for kids to self-assess with one another or to do, you know, kind of group projects in which other teachers are even coming in and providing assessments um, for them as part of kind of public displays of learning and presentations. So I think that we're still kind of in some growth and development phases there, but what we have found is that we have been still able to with what by removing and this is something i feel grateful to have inherited by removing the high stakes pressure of students having to focus on well i have an a i have a b i have a whatever um, we've been still able to focus on the growth and development of their skills as opposed to the outcome of what letter grade or percentage they wind up with at the end of the course yeah greg and that's something i want to just dive into a little bit more deeply right this you've removed that high pressure scenario for your students when you actually take the grades away. And so has that been something that's just been part of Stanley British Primary School? Like, is that part of just who you are? Or was that like an intentional shift that happened? 
that's been part of who we are and something that I think has kind of just been baked into the philosophy and culture. And I'll share even with respect to, you know, when we rolled out this model and I remember doing the Zoom call in the summer of 2020 with our parents and kind of rolling out, well, here's what it's going to look like. And, you know, some of our parents were familiar with Colorado College and others, others were not, but nobody was saying, you know, even in that first iteration, there were very few parents who were saying, well, I'm really worried about retention, or I'm really worried about, you know, what is my kid's test score going to be, or what is my kid's grade going to be? They were really excited about as we take a holistic approach to kids, they were really excited about saying, wow, now my kid really gets to dive deep and focus on something as opposed to bouncing from class to class to class. And so I think it's something when you, you know, there's a a number of different independent schools in Denver, there's a, a strong charter network in Denver, there's lots of different options. For our families who choose Stanley, we talk a lot about mission and philosophical alignment. For the families who choose us, I think one of the reason that, reasons that they're choosing us is because they care not only about their students' academic development, but also about their holistic growth. And it's really never been part of the conversation, you know, as a division head. It is a, a rare conversation I have with a family that is about the outcome of a specific assignment or test or grade Or even, you know, we still do continue to, you know, have students take the the ERB test. The number of conversations that I have with families, even about those standardized test scores, are few and far between by comparison, I think, to other, other schools and other division heads and people that I speak with. What I'm hearing, too, is just your role in all of this in fostering that innovation is those one-on-one conversations you had with faculty, right? Kind of leading the charge with what this new model would look like, but also the parental communication piece, right? Like reaching out to the families and really making sure that they're aware of the shift that you were making. So I'm wondering now if we can maybe shift into kind of your role as head of the middle school. And again, to this idea of fostering innovation, you've probably worn lots of hats, but I'm curious if you can just kind of speak to maybe what are you most proudest of when it comes to this initiative that you've taken on and have been successful with and kind of what role would you say you've played in really fostering the innovation that was required to, to implement this? Yeah, I love, I love that question, Jackie. I think, you know, what I'm most proud of is the way that our community has embraced this change and how I've been able to facilitate and foster conversations that allow us to really change the idea of what education can look like at a time that is and has been a crisis for schools and for education. You know, I really love the work of Sir Ken Robinson. And, you know, I know it's a dated video at this point, but his work around like changing education paradigms and thinking about how the education system really relies on conformity and compliance, like, I really felt that this opportunity, you know, and I really do see, you know, for all of the heartbreak and all of the challenge and hardship that the pandemic has induced, I really think we viewed this in an asset-based fashion to view and to to be able to use, you know, the parameters of this to be uh, of these, these health aspects to really grow our middle school and grow our faculty. So that that's what I'm most proud of is that we were able to be asset based in this and see this as, as an opportunity to grow, as opposed to thinking about it as, well, what are we losing? We were able to, to be optimistic and say, what are we gaining? What have we continued to be able to foster through really challenging circumstances? 
I think the other thing that I'm really proud of is just the way that we have listened to student experience and the way that our teachers and advisors have wrapped their arms around kids and been able to, to say, we need to embrace this for the sake of helping kids be in school and prioritizing their mental health. We even, from a health standpoint, you know, we even cohorted our recess spaces so that those cohorts that kids were in you know, they were in a certain, we called them recess countries and that rotated around. So one week you had the playground and one week you had the basketball court and one week you had the four square court and all these different things. And like we know middle school kids need more outlets, more opportunity, more uh, ability to be able to meet different kids and try on different identities. And we were saying we're, we have to do somewhat the opposite of that. And like, here's your four square court for the for the month. And I think that I'm, I'm really proud of the way that our kids and our faculty and our parents all really partnered together to be able to utilize a really difficult circumstance to grow in each of their different roles. Yeah, you really have, like you said, changed the paradigm and you've kind of used this incredibly challenging moment, right, to capitalize on how you can make a change and how it can be better. So I applaud you in your work there. That's just so, so exciting. What other advice have you received in uh, regards to fostering innovation that's been really helpful along the way? As far as advice, you know, I kind of come back to this idea that it's really this like just question of like, why not? It's like the big overarching question for me. And sometimes why not has a really good answer and you shouldn't do it. But, but other times it doesn't. And so when we think about like, you know, some of the ideas or creative things that we could come up with, like it's really this kind of just brainstorming and design thinking idea of ideating and saying, well, what if we did this or what if we did that? And then thinking about what that risk might look like and modeling that for our students. You know, what if we for a day or a week switched spaces and taught science classes and art spaces and art, spa- art classes and, you know, uh, social studies spaces and like, what would you do with a different space? I think is is one way that I've thought about it. And like, why not try that for a week? Like, what might we learn? And so I think, you know, drawing on kind of, you know, listening to our faculty, listening to how that, you know, what things might look like, and then also thinking about the implications of those and not just doing things to do them is really great professional development. It's what the, it's the work that we're starting to get into as we iterate for next year's schedule also. So that's been an important piece of advice for me is is just that, that question of why not. I think another piece for me is just really thinking about the the mantra of thinking about what's best for kids and particularly what's best for um, relational learning. You know, there's needs to be dedicated time for relationship building, for restorative practices, for um, anti-bias work, and for enjoyment, for joy and fun in schools. And I think in the conversations that we have in schools, when we think about innovation, we sometimes lose sight of the relationships first. And so, you know, framing conversations around innovation to come back to the human-centered side of what we're in this for. Yeah. I mean, so much of that is is just so important. And I want to come back to that first piece of uh, advice or inspiration on kind of why not. I think that really lends itself to a sense of open-mindedness, right? A a level of risk-taking that you have to be comfortable with, I think, when you ask that question. (laughs) And so how does that look at your school when you pose that question, why not? Do you have like the systems or structures to to test new ideas and to do that in a way where you're 
building trust and it's okay if you fail. Because I think those are just really important pieces to helping folks see how innovation can be successful. From a system standpoint, part of it is, I hope, and this was speaking to your question earlier about my role, you know, I think it's, it's speaking to this idea of trust in our teachers. You know, I can be seen as an evaluator. I can be seen as someone who's trying to grow folks. If you trust that the risks that you're taking are going to be met with support, then I think you have a lot more agency and initiative to be able to, to take those on. And so I've really tried to be explicit and laid out for my faculty as I started this school year, like, here are my goals. Here's what I'm working on. Here's where I think I need to grow. And I need to, you know, improve my ability to gather feedback. And I need to be a stronger delegator. And I need to demonstrate my own vulnerabilities and risk-taking. It's something I think that as I came into my role four years ago, I was not very good at. And I've really tried to be intentional about speaking to that and speaking that truth. My hope is that it can provide opportunity for teachers then to trust in that vulnerability too, and to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to try that, or hey, let me run this by you. What do you think of this? And then go with it in their classroom. The micromanagement, the super hands-on approach, I don't think is, is effective for fostering innovation. And so you need to be able to say, step back, know that people are going to make mistakes, and also to be transparent in owning them. That sort of agency and saying, yeah, this didn't go the way that I wanted it to is okay. And when you've created a culture where people are able to be open and honest with one another about what's going well in their classroom or what isn't, I think that really sparks the opportunity to innovate and be creative. Yeah. And what I hear too, is you're really kind of modeling it as well from your end, right? That vulnerability, that sense of risk-taking, and that can be really helpful, I think, in just building that culture, like you mentioned. But it also speaks to the second piece that you said is really critical, which is that relational learning, right? If we're not being honest with each other, or sharing our own learnings and maybe our own pitfalls that we've learned from, that that can be a hindrance to fostering innovation. But it really sounds like it's been the opposite um, at your school. And so that relational learning piece is so key right now. I mean, can you also speak to just how that kind of factored into all of this and how you know, those conversations really drove the design of this type of innovation? Yeah. And I, and I think the relational learning also is, is not only student to teacher, but teacher to teacher. And to go back to your previous question about, about structures, like one thing I'm thinking about is just the way we've done professional growth and professional development within our faculty is, you know, providing choice in the same way that we provide choice for students, providing choice for faculty. And so like this year we had a professional development opportunity where I took some, you know, different morning meeting times and I said, we're going to dedicate this to choice PD. And so here's a few different options. You know, you can lean into critical friends groups um, if you'd like. And we talked a little about what those were. We had done that a couple of years ago. You can create a group and do some things around Japanese lesson study. Or, you know, I've really tried to encourage in that relational learning piece to have our faculty shadowing students and living what it's like to be in this schedule and to be a student wearing a mask, going from class to class now, having a major, and then reflecting on and providing opportunity of what it's like to work, to, to be a student and see how their day is lived. And so from a relational learning standpoint, you know, prioritizing at the center, the child's experience, um, I think has been part of the way that we do professional growth. It's part of the way that we think about how we uh, provide um, support and scaffold to um, individual students. Um, it's part of the way that we've staffed our middle school. 
you know, I have a middle school of 160 students and we have three dedicated learning specialists in our middle school and they make a huge impact within our middle school by um, collaborating um, with our teachers. Um, they they co-plan with each of our teachers every week. They push into classrooms to provide differentiated instruction in various spaces as well. And so, you know, as we think about relational learning, you know, having adults be with kids as often as possible. I think, you know, if you love middle school kids, then you want to be with them and have that that contact time to be able to have an impact with them. And that's that's the the value and that's the um the value add I think of of independent schools and particularly our school that is so much about knowing and seeing and honoring kids for who they are. Yeah, hearing some of those kind of concrete structures and protocols you put in place is really helpful. Also, the fact that you have these really embedded learning specialists, right, in that experience, but collaborating with your teachers, truly amazing. I want to take a step back to just to kind of reflect on your role again in all of this. And my question for you is, did you kind of always see yourself in this role or kind of was it always the plan um, to become head of middle school and kind of lead this type of really innovative work and kind of changing that paradigm of, of what middle school could be like? It was definitely not always my plan. I've been very fortunate to be nudged by some mentors and other educators in two schools here in Denver to take on different leadership opportunities and try new. And so this is, I think, the way that my mind works to be creative and innovative. When I was a classroom teacher at my previous school, I really wanted to come up with some different structures and ways to be creative in my classroom as I identified different problems. And think structures like critical friends groups help bring that out for me. And so like, you know, one, one problem that I had, um, and it was, uh, I won't take credit for it, but was identified in talking to another colleague with this idea that, you know, as an English and history teacher, I provide an assignment. I would early in my career write all of this feedback put all these great things, you know, get carpal tunnel in the process and then, you know, watch students as I handed it back to them, look at it, check the 88 and throw it in their backpack and watch my soul crush a little bit. And I needed a different way to structure feedback for students. And so I got really into thinking about how we provide feedback and doing um, audio commentary for students. So instead of handing papers back or writing comments in the margin or doing Microsoft Word comments, I was narrating over their feedback. And this actually, when I think about it, goes back even to a teacher I had in high school who would require us to bring in a cassette tape and would record her comments about that feedback. So this has been going on for a long time, but the innovative piece of it, I think, is that it's now um, we have uh, different technological tools and different ways of fostering innovation that can get at some of these problems. Or I was really frustrated at my previous school that did have you know, cumulative grades at the end of a semester or trimester, I was frustrated by how grade oriented our kids were. So I, I moved toward utilizing uh, what is called contract grading, where essentially you lay out the parameters of what is required to get an A or what is required to get a B or a C. And then students contract with you. Uh, this is what I would like to contract for. And if I meet these requirements and demonstrate growth, it's really allows you to focus on growth as, a fo as opposed to focus on a specific level of competency in a specific sphere or, or content knowledge. And so in that way, I've been, I've tried to always be creative, innovative, and think differently about what our classroom spaces and what our work can do to put the child at the center. I, I 
feel fortunate that I was in a role that gave me the opportunity to facilitate this work at an at you know what I feel is a real inflection point in education and so that was kind of a little bit of being in the right place at the right time at a at a school that philosophically so puts kids at its center but it it certainly was not always my plan I was also a, a teacher and I think for all the teachers out there, right, it's just so easy to innovate in the classroom because you're constantly being thrown these challenges that you have to kind of address on the spot. And that really builds that mindset, I think, right, of just constant growth, iteration, trying new things, thinking differently. So I really appreciate that. But also, like you said, this amazing inflection point that we're in, that we find ourselves all navigating through. Um, and what an amazing opportunity that was for you all and how you turned it into an opportunity at your school. Thank you for your time today and for sharing your story, how you've fostered innovation at Stanley British Primary School. We appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Jackie. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about Member Voices along with some other related NEIS resources from each episode by visiting neis.org slash membervoices. You can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to automatically receive a new podcast episode in your feed each month. See you next time on New View EDU.